Hey guys, welcome and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today is a mega entrepreneur. He received his Bachelor's of Science degree in Agriculture Economics from Cornell University and his MBA from Vanderbilt University. He serves on the board of the publicly traded cannabis investment firm, Vencana. He is the chairman of Teleria, a company he founded in 2006 to incubate and celebrate iconic brands and is a senior advisor to STS Capital. He has founded and built multiple companies and brands, including National Wine and Spirits, which is now one of the largest distributors of beer, wine, spirits in the United States with over $1 billion in beverage sales. He has overseen more than $1.7 billion in M&A deals and financing publicly and privately for his companies and created hundreds of millions of dollars in value for his stockholders. He is the CEO of Vertical Wellness, a leading vertically integrated CBD brand company Smoke Whalen, welcome, and thank you so much for being a part of West. Let's be brought with Montel today, sir. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great having you, sir. Look, I mean, uh, you got out of school. Um, you started your your in, in business uh, in background is in, and you have a really, 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 very, very, very unique background, but your background's in the hospitality sector. Tell us what uh, interested you in that, and how did you uh, decide to pursue that field out of college? Well, it was probably uh, because I got jobs at hotels and restaurants, uh, you know, in high school. And then in at, during Cornell, I got introduced to the hotel world and I got great internships. So I got to live in Atlantic City and work at a casino one summer and the Ritz Carlton in Boston one summer. And, uh, you know, just had a had a fun time. It was really a cool place to 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 learn about hospitality and service. And um, it, it just was a natural. But um, when I got out of uh, Cornell, I, I went actually jumped into the other side, which is the brand side and, and joined Seagram in their leadership training program and then jumped over to the distributing business. And so most of my customers for many, many years were hotels and restaurants and bars and retail stores. So you, you really kind of uh, honed your skills distributing beverages around the country. That, and that should have been enough or could have been enough for a lot of other people. But what got you interested in the cannabis space? Well, Montel, years ago, I helped a Marine launch a uh, vodka called Heroes Vodka, which was a brand designed to give back to veterans. And as we did that, and we ended up putting it into Walmart and a bunch of other, rolled it out around the country. As I, as I did that with Travis, his friend group was a lot of uh, veterans. And I got to know these guys really well. And what I found out was a lot of them had come back from Afghanistan or Iraq and I had lots of issues, PTSD and other challenges. And the VA was prescribing them this crazy cocktail of painkillers and antidepressants and sleep medicine and all these different medicines, which together made it, if you, and if you add alcohol to it, it you know, made it for a very toxic mix. So I learned during that time that a number of them were getting help through cannabis. And it was the first time that I had been exposed to the health and wellness side of it. Uh, as opposed to, you know, the college years when it was more of the party side. Uh, mm -hmm. And and that really stuck in my head. So years later, when I sold my last whiskey and vodka business, my wife turned to me and said, you know, we really need to look at cannabis uh, before you do another liquor deal. And I was like, you know what, I, I really do need to look at that and see if it's time. And uh, the rest is history. But that was uh, that was four years ago now. 
That's incredible. And I know you have continued your advocacy for veterans. Yes, absolutely. We've got a bunch of veterans that work for us. My chief operating officer is a Marine, 13-year Marine, and uh, we've we've hired extensively, and we continue to to be give back. They're one of our give back partners. Well, you know, I, I, I'll take a second of your your time in this interview to tell you a little bit about a program that um, I've been working with and coordinating with over the course of the last now almost ten years. But finally, uh, they have literally broken through. It's a company. It's a core. It's a nonprofit that's called R and R that developed a protocol that's called RTM which is now listed as evidentiary medicine and one of only two cures for PTSD on the planet. The program uh, literally has a 90% efficaciousness rate, different than some of the uh, other therapies that the VA has been using and they've been using for years now, something called exposure therapy, which only has about a 35% uh, uh, efficaciousness rating. Um, this one, nine out of every 10 soldiers who go through this are literally cured. They remit every one of their symptoms of PTSD in as little as five treatments, five hours without any medication at all. Uh, the average is about 12 hours. Um, this is a protocol that I've literally been bouncing around the country with and talking to everybody and their mother from the Senate to you know, uh, Ken Fisher of Fisher House to, you know, we've been uh, working with the um, Disabled Veterans of America, AMVETS. We're literally right now trying to make the VA stop in its tracks and pay attention to this. So, you know, I'm glad that there's somebody like you out there working on veterans issues also, but I want to let you know that that exists. If you want more information about it, I will definitely get it to you. Definitely. That's That sounds fantastic. I'd love to learn more and, and share the message as well. Yeah, what's so crazy is that, you know, again, this is, it, it, it is such a transformative protocol that, and I think you probably know this, it's the same reason why uh, cannabis has been treated the way it is, transformative breakthroughs in medicine and treatment in this country always met with, met with the most vehement and adamant resistance by the medical community. Um, not for any other reason other than the fact that it's going to take some money out of people's pockets. And, you know, what's really kind of silly is that you know, the PTSD has become almost by itself a cottage industry in this world. You know, uh, the government has spent probably close to two and a half billion dollars in the last five years on PTSD. There's several universities who literally, you know, are banking on three and four hundred million dollars worth of donations every single year to <coughs> prop up protocols that don't work. <laughs> this is one that does work. So. Just want to let you know That's that great. I'll definitely get you some information on that because I think it's guys like you that that put your you know money where your mouth is and also put your your heart where your mouth is, you know, helping our veterans that we need. And, you know, I, I, I'm a veteran, so you know, I'm trying my best to make sure that we we help these guys as much as we can, and especially okay. even even through cannabis. And we've now proven that cannabis is, you know, a gateway exit drug, not a gateway drug, an exit drug for opioid addictions and also helps out the way it does when it comes to uh, helping uh, soldiers, helping everyone who suffers from PTSD. Well, th thank you for your service, Montel, and, and, and uh, all the work you do on that cause. It's really important. Absolutely, sir. Tell me a little bit about Vertical. Your your company, what is it called? Um, I'm sorry. I, I Vertical that Wellness. Yeah. Vertical Wellness. So tell me a little bit about Vertical Wellness. So... The, the story of vertical wellness is, you know, I, I mentioned I was in the beverage industry 
I spent about six months looking at cannabis in general, <coughs> and, <coughs> excuse me, and ended up coming out to California, investing in a company that had uh, made some early investments in the medical cannabis space. And we put them all together, raised some capital and started scaling it out as California went adult use uh, legal in 2018. And early in 2018, I went out to Washington. I wanted to get a handle on how uh, how long the prohibition was going to last, what 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 appetite Washington had to remove the federal prohibition. And I left there thinking, well, they're not there's definitely not agreement yet. This was back in 2018. But there was a lot of support for hemp and uh, bipartisan support. So I got back to California. I said, you know, this industry is going to be it's going to help so many people, but it's going to be about brands and the brands that that emerge over time are going to be, I think, the the big winners and are going to give people comfort that they're safe and that they're well made, but also is going to create a lot of value for the people that create the brands. And as I looked at the landscape in the THC world, it's very fragmented. Every state has its own set of laws. It's very difficult to build a national brand today. But with hemp coming, getting legal, our thought was, you know, if we were to create brands using the cannabis plant, but hemp, which is low in THC, and we were to build national brands through traditional retail like Walmart and Walgreens and hospitality like Marriott and Hyatt, we could build national brands that would be trusted by consumers, giving them value quickly, and then work our way back into the cannabis world. So that's really the the the, the secret behind Vertical Wellness is we're a brand company do, bringing health and wellness to the market, using legal hemp to do it. But we're very much in, in the game of uh, how do we advance the overall cannabis effort. And we think our brand portfolio is going to play a key role in that. You know, I was uh, recently speaking to a doctor. I don't know if you know who Dr. Tischler is. Do you know him, Dr. Tischler? I don't Harvard, know him. Harvard trained doctor. Um, he runs an organization that is an association of doctors across the country who are finally starting to get with the program and understand the value of cannabis um, at its core. And recent conversations with him, and, and he echoed some of my thoughts that have been going on. When you, you brought up, you know, going to California in 2018 and taking a look at the legalization standard, you take a look at the legalization of cannabis around the country, New Jersey, now New York, one of the biggest states jumping into this mix. You know, it, it in some ways, and I, I don't say it to cast aspersions on our industry, but I think it's going to do our our industry a disservice rather than a service because as people focus in on recreational and and you know um, adult use they leave the patients on the battlefield and yeah. unfortunately unfortunately you know it, it's going to take big you're right i think it's going to take big brands that are willing to start to spend the money I mean, if we face it i mean i think most people who gravitate towards cannabis instead of alcohol or gravitating towards cannabis because they have an underlying medical issue if they don't admit it or not. Those who use cannabis are using it to relax or to lessen anxiety, help them with their sleep. They don't consider themselves medical patients, but they're using it for a medical reason. Yet we as an industry are trying our best to just satisfy an adult use recreational category that really at the end of the day, I'm not sure we'll be as sustainable as the idea of medical. And we look at places like Israel where, you know, cannabis is considered almost a geriatric drug now, helping people to reduce the amount of pharmaceuticals that they're on. 
That means that, you know, the largest population that they have in Israel, which is baby boomers, are some of the biggest consumers. Could be the same thing here in the United States, yet we kind of, I think in some ways, are kind of missing the boat a little bit where we're trying to figure, well, we're forgetting about the patient and trying to concentrate on this whole legal market and recreation and not meeting the needs of so many more who could be users. Well, I think it's a really interesting point. And the way I look at it is this, there is a, obviously a recreational component that exists and that could be as big as beer, wine, or spirits. But I think the health and wellness aspect of cannabis, the benefits of this plant, which in its core reduces inflammation, which is associated with so many of the ailments that we have as we age, you know, is a is an incredible um, uh, benefit and is many times larger than the recreational space. So you what you said is exactly the way I think about it. And I don't I don't begrudge uh, people having the recreational stuff. That's fine. You know, if you if I put. 10 guys in a room and I gave them unlimited uh, whiskey, uh, there might be a fight and someone might die. Uh, if I get the same 10 people in a room and I gave them unlimited cannabis, they might order a pizza, they might pull a muscle from laughing and they might all fall asleep. So as, as a um, overall harm, and I'm not anti-alcohol, but uh, there's a, a much less harm with this plant uh, in a recreational sense. But I think we're barely scratching the surface on the health and wellness aspects. And some of that, Montel, is really... I think we've got to uh, formalize a lot of studies. There's more and more coming out all the time, as you know. But uh, you know that takes capital and it takes time to do studies where you can actually make health claims around it. And so some of it is that it's difficult to make those claims until you have evidence that the government will agree on, and and that takes more time than saying, "Hey, this is a great, uh, this is great cannabis, and you know it's got a high THC content." So. Uh, you know, but I think, but part of that, I'm not, I, was, I agree with you 100%. Um, we do need to do more studies, but what we need to do, I think, as an industry, I just throw it out, is the fact that we spend so much time in the B2B mode, you know, trying to fit, ensure that, you know, every one of our competitors are as successful as we are uh, from a capitalistic standpoint, but we do a really piss poor job in the B2C mode. That means the B2Consumer mode. Educating, yeah. the, educating the masses, making them aware of educating. When I say the masses, I'm not just talking about the consumer from the patient standpoint, but from the doctors, from the politician standpoint. I mean, you know, the quite often it seems to be I'm so sick of hearing this, this, this statement from politicians. Oh, well, we need to get the research done. Stop. Yeah. If you Google cannabis and research. There are well over 23,000 published peer-reviewed articles out there right at 23,000. I was talking to a doctor recently who said that if you look up in Google, the same amount of published articles on alcohol is only 5,000, around 5,000, 6,000. There's 23,000 articles that have been published so far. And some of these longitudinal studies have been being done for the last 10, 15 years. There's a study that just came out a month and a half ago. That's been a 25-year long study. So it's not like the research isn't there. We in the industry, I think, and I don't want to say we, I'm not casting this version of you, but I'm just talking about the industry in general, is doing such a piss poor job in educating. The fact that we have a guy who's just elected president of the United States who still believes that cannabis is a gateway drug tells me how poor a job we've done in educating. Yeah, no, um, it's a really good point. And we, we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, how do we educate the trade and also how do we educate our consumers? And one of the things that I think um, 
it comes with building a brand is get is you know what is a brand it's a, it's it's the promise of something it's an expectation that you you know if you buy a coca-cola you know it's going to taste the same every time uh you know it, it's it's building uh trust and one of the challenges in building brands in the cannabis space is you can't make health claims so you have to do it in other ways one way that we've we're doing and others have done similar things but we've got a partnership that i put together with kathy ireland who has been very active in health uh, causes, uh, women's health, children's health for a long time. She's got a incredible business where she's, her brands are sold in lots of different sectors. And we licensed, uh, we did a deal with her. So we're launching Kathy Ireland Health and Wellness CBD Solutions. And the point of that is there's a large population of mainstream consumers who are very interested in replacing their uh, pharmaceutical drugs, whether it's Advil or it's sleeping pills or it's, um, anxiety, all the things that we know that this plant can be very helpful on, but they're, and they like to try something natural. They'd like to try cannabis and CBD, but the, they're, they don't know who to trust. And there's, the brands aren't big yet where you can say, oh, that's a brand that I know and trust and I believe in. So we look at our partnership with Kathy as a invitation to people that trust her to come into the space, to try these alternative medicines and to really um, join us in this in this effort to expand the use of of the plant, and I I think it's we're getting a great reaction from the trade, and we'll see once we get it out with consumers. But I think it will be um, a, a good way to communicate and educate. Absolutely, and I think again, not only do you need a you know, I mean, there are a lot of celebrities out here right now that I, I've had a brand in in market for you know off and on for the last ten years. I just signed another deal in uh, New Jersey, and I'm going to probably be rolling out my CBD brand again across the country. Um, and But I've, I've found that just the name alone, this is like Snoop Dogg's product, isn't the biggest selling product in the country. Why not? I mean, he's probably one of the most well-known cannabis you know, connoisseurs there is. But you know, you have to back that up with some factual data. And recently, you know, there are so many new articles that have been published in the last in the last year alone that talks about everything from, you know, the fact that, again, cannabis is not the gateway drug that most of these politicians still glom onto when they they make those statements. Uh, it's proven that in states where cannabis has, you know, been dispensed medically, that most cannabis use among teenagers goes down. Yeah, they, yeah. goes down. Montel, the gateway, as you know, is keeping it prohibited, making it illegal. And the gateway is you have to go buy it from a, a drug dealer who has every incentive to up, upgrade their sale and sell you something worse. That's the gateway. So you, you re regulate it, you legalize it, and you have clean, tested product, and you eliminate that middleman who's really interested in not your best health. So I, mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, it, it's the opposite of a gateway drug. Absolutely. And, you know, how, how has COVID impacted your business? Well, it's been it's been a challenging year for everyone. But I would say that uh, when cannabis got deemed an essential product in most states, that really helped solidify the movement forward, the momentum forward. And, uh, you know, I, I, there was a moment when it looked like they might shut down all the operations, like they shut down lots of other businesses, but they deemed it essential. and for the most part, sales have been very strong throughout the country. I think, uh, I think cannabis, cannabis has proven to almost be recession-proof. As a matter of fact, most most of the dispensaries in this country are 
are seeing record profits for this year over last year. So yeah, you're it, exactly right. It's um, it, it really has. But where it hurt us is on the on the CBD side of things. The retailers were not taking new products, right? So so um, you know we expected to roll out brands at mainstream retailers like Walmart and Target, but a lot of them tapped the brakes when the FDA didn't allow ingestibles before COVID, and then they you know they weren't really adding new categories during the COVID. Uh, you know they were providing cleaning solution and, you know, essentials, but they weren't adding new categories. That's now changing Montel. So what we're, we're hearing from the retail trade is they're open for business. They're adding new business, new categories. They're uh, looking for new ways to grow their revenue and that's helping a lot. But last year that was quite difficult. And just if you, um, you know, had to put on your, your crystal ball hat, I mean, how do you think cannabis is going to spark this economic recovery across the country after post-pandemic? Well, it's it's clear that it's a, a huge job creator, that it's a huge tax generator. I mean, I just saw that the first quarter in Illinois, which has only been uh, legal for a little over a year from an adult use standpoint, uh, was bigger. The tax take for the first quarter was bigger than the entire alcohol taxes that were collected. So that's an indication of, of the kind of money that, that can come in to support these states. And obviously, if the federal government gets out of its own way, there's going to be a federal revenue stream as well. So it, I think it's jobs, it's, it's, uh, it's direct jobs, and it's periphery jobs. Just building out, think about building out New York and all the grows and the dispensaries and uh, the different businesses that are going to uh, be impacted by just setting up that whole system. And that's yeah, New York, and New, York system, New York system is broader than any other state that exists right now. And next to maybe New Jersey, I mean, with the fact that New York, you can actually consume cannabis anywhere you can smoke a cigarette, uh, meaning you can walk outside and smoke cannabis if you choose to, as long as you're not within, you know, a certain distance of a school or near kids. You can't do it in a park where, where other people are, are sitting, but you can be on a street corner and you can't be arrested. You can have it in your pocket. You can't be arrested. So... I think New York is going to definitely change the way some of the existing state laws around the country have uh, functioned over the course of the last four or five years. I agree. It's a big deal. Absolutely. And now, I mean, you think that the federal government is going to change its policy? We're going to go towards, I mean, right now, I hate this whole idea of decriminalization because that still says I'm a criminal and I'm not a criminal because I use medica medication. But um, do you think that they're going to go the way of decriminalization? Do you think they're going to go the way of legalization? I mean, you cannot deny the tax implications and lots of states are now, you know, gearing up to put this on the ballot. A couple more states are putting us on the ballot next go around going from med medical to, to recreational. What do you think the Fed's going to do? I mean, if you had a crystal ball this over the course of the next year, two years, what do you think is going to happen? Well, look, I, I think it's it's going to be um, prohibition is going to be removed, but uh, how it's going to be removed is the big question. So the uh, it, it's um, I'm not one that believes that you're going to have this wide open market where California and Oregon can ship cannabis all across the country. There's too much vested interest in these state systems where somebody invested a lot of money in Ohio to grow and, you know, California could take it out in two seconds. So I think it's going to be a state by state system, but they're going to remove the federal prohibition. And if you look, if you think about how alcohol prohibition ended, 
there was consensus that it wasn't working, that there was everyone was drinking anyway, it created criminals out of normal citizens. And but and so they, the general consensus was it's not working, but there was not a consensus on how to legalize it. So the great compromise, which it, the prohibition repeal, the 21st Amendment is sometimes referred to, was really that every state had the right to regulate alcohol within their borders. That's why you see such varying systems. In, in New York, uh, you go to, to buy wine and spirits, you have to go to a liquor store. To buy beer, you can go to the grocery store. In California, I can go to Safeway and there's stacks of Grey Goose in the, in the aisle with the chips. So in Pennsylvania, it's a state monopoly where the state runs it all. So I, I believe that that's probably a model that will exist. And in cannabis, you're going to see a very state-centric system because not every state's going to want the same things. But they'll get rid of the prohibition. We'll get rid of the, the Safe Banking Act, I think, is the most likely uh, thing to get past the Senate, which would um, would would help a lot of businesses in it because, and safety as well. There's so much cash that people are stuck with that it would open up banking, which would be really important for the safety of the workers, the safety of the businesses, uh, and, and just keeping criminals out, right? It's an important piece. And but, even, um, I mean, I think that Safe Banking, banking Act would help even when it comes to hemp, because in a lot of cases, a lot of these banks are confused about the fact that hemp is legal. 100% confused. And We've had banks shut us down. I'm like, listen, we're doing 100% legal, federally legal hemp, and uh, and yet I'm paying extra fees for credit card processing, and I'm having to uh, do all kinds of extra steps in uh, with banking. And I agree. So the the Safe Banking Act would be a big game changer for for the industry and for everyone involved in it. Well, what businesses do you think would stand to gain the most from legalization? Uh, well. So the, to the degree it doesn't get completely, so it's, I think it's going to happen in steps, Montel. So for step one might be safe banking, might be a decriminalization component. Uh, and then at some point they're going to completely deschedule it and get it off the, you know, so it's completely legal. Until that happens, a lot of the Canadian, uh, large Canadian companies can't really participate here in the U.S., but a lot of the U.S. MSOs, the multi-state operators that are in these licensed states, uh, are benefiting with this current system. So the longer it remains partially federally prohibited, the longer it's going to help the existing U.S. operators get bigger and big scale. But once it goes completely legal, then you're going to see not only the Canadians, but I think mainstream consumer products companies, tobacco, alcohol, uh, Nestle, you name it, all kinds of businesses will enter the space in different ways. And, um, and that, will, uh, that will bring a lot of new capital into the space, but also it'll probably be a lot of acquisitions of the early stage investors. So, um, you know, a lot of the people that are in it now and fighting through banking and all the other issues that we deal with, I assume will be beneficiaries when the big guys come in and a lot of institutional capital comes to play. Are you fearful at all of what's going on on the global scale, on the international scale? I mean, you've got, you know, uh, uh, Colombia, Argentina, India, uh, Spain, Africa, China, all jumping into the hemp space and the CBD space. Though, I mean, I would I would question anybody who was crazy enough to put some Chinese CBD in their in their body, but uh, it's 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 going to be there, and yeah. within the next year. 
there's already moves afoot that allow for importation of isolates of CBD from some of these countries. Do you fear that at all? Uh, I mean, to some degree, but I think it's, uh, first of all, I think the main, the big brands that are going to be the big global brands are probably going to originate in the U S and, and, so, you know, and that's true of not all brands, but it's true of a lot of brands, a lot of categories, a lot of the really big brands, you know, start in here or in, maybe in Western Europe, but a lot of, a lot of brands start here. So I think we have a big advantage over all those other places in terms of building sustainable brand businesses. And when it comes to the importation of, you know, I look at them as ingredients and, you know, if the cost goes down on the ingredients and someone can grow very inexpensively in say Colombia safely and expensively, you know, tested all the normal things that we want to see in any, any product. Um, and it lowers the cost of the input. That's not necessarily a terrible thing. Now it might, if I'm a grower in, uh, you know, in, in a, in a state, it, it that's going to hurt me. But if I'm brands and I'm using these ingredients in my brands to, uh, deliver a health and wellness benefit to consumers, and it helps drive the cost of this uh, of this plant down so that it becomes more available to people. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I I, I kind of look at it as both. There's there's pros and cons to it. Uh, I also think that again, there's going to be protectionism uh, at the state level within the U.S., and then probably there'll be protectionism on an international level where uh, the U.S. guys are not going to want product cannabis coming in from other other countries uh, for a while. Like, that might change at some point, but I think it's going to be pretty restricted for the foreseeable future. And, you know, one, one if people don't lose perspective sometimes. I know you've been at this for a long time, but if you think about it, prohibition ended in 1933. That's for alcohol. We're still fighting about the liquor laws today. We have, you know, uh, cases going to the Supreme Court on a regular basis, litigating states' rights versus uh, federal you know, you know, federal commerce, uh, interstate commerce, and those battles are still happening, you know, literally, uh, you know, almost, you know, 90 years later. So anyone that thinks this is going to be settled law with one legalization bill, and that everyone's going to get along, and it's all going to work, it, it doesn't understand history and how these things work, it's going to be there's going to be lots of battles and lots of different uh, constituencies, which is how laws are made. And, you know, there's, generally compromise that, that creates a consensus that we can move forward. So you're going to see a lot of that over time. And, uh, you know, I think it's, um, you know, it, it's a long game. This is not, this is not a quick in and out. It's not going to be an overnight success. It's going to take uh, a long time to sort this out, but I think directionally unbelievable momentum in the right direction. What do you, do you see taking vertical wellness public in the future? I do. We're, we almost got public in the fall of 19. We we got very close to getting a reverse merger into a SPAC in on NASDAQ uh, at that time. But when I planted, when our, our I don't plant anything, my farmers planted 1,800 acres of hemp. When we planted it, that was estimated to be worth something like three to $400 million of CBD that would come off of that crop. By the time we harvested, when we were trying to go public, that was probably worth 30 to 50 million because of the pricing that had gotten compressed. So our deal didn't happen. So since then, the hemp industry has been in, in quite a bit of distress. Seven of the largest companies went bankrupt between August of 19 and February of 20 before COVID. And the capital markets have been a little bit restrictive for, for hemp. They've opened up again for cannabis 
today with uh, the new administration and the momentum that's happening at the state level. And I see CBD and hemp coming back, but it's taken a little while. So yeah, that's a long answer to say, yes, we were going to get public. We didn't. Uh, these windows open and close in financial markets all the time. And uh, we're we're working on several deals that would get us public sooner rather than later. So that's uh, active, um, active on my list of uh, high priority projects. And the reason is, it's not to be public to cash out. It's to have access to capital to build this business the right way, to, to be able to do the medical studies we want to do, to invest in the brands, and to really scale the business up and to be able to make the acquisitions that we think are going to be necessary over time. So it's really a vehicle to enable us to scale at the level I want to scale uh, as more so than any other reason. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, that, that's, that's why we're doing it. When you when you talk about brands and, uh, and brands you want to acquire, what do, what do you look for when you select a brand to to build out? What are you looking for? Well, you know we we divide up the the uses of the plant into various categories. So when you think about it, everything from pet care to beauty products to uh, health and wellness to pre workout, post workout to sleep, you know, there's a lot of different uses and different form factors from topicals to uh, ingestibles like candies to beverages, which is, I think, are going to be a very large category. Uh, and so when you think about the different form factors and the different uses, the typical consumer is not going to put, not going to give their pet a um, some CBD chewy treats and then eat them themselves or put it on their injury. It, it really needs to be its own category. So that's why we have a bunch of brands that are focused on specific uses use cases, uh, situations where where using the plant in a certain way with certain other ingredients provides benefit. And you know, a beauty line is not gonna be the same as a pet line, as a sports line. So when we look at brands, we think about it that way. We think about focus, you know, putting the same brand into every category uh, works if you're a store like Costco and you have a brand, a brand like Kirkland, your store brand, or GNC maybe with their vitamins. But uh, most real, most standalone brands don't slap their brand on every type of product, right? So it, it, I, I use the example of if uh, Diageo owns Johnny Walker scotch, but they when they came out with a vodka, they didn't put Johnny Walker vodka. They, they acquired Chirac or Kettle One or Smirnoff. So they create different brands for different categories within spirits. And that's really how we look at it. So for us, it's about traction? Do you have consumer demand? Uh, is there someone or multiple people involved with a brand who have their own platform that can help attract consumers to it? Um, what's the efficacy of the brand? You know, how does it work? Is it effective? I mean, that's really, really important part of the functionality of these brands. Uh, and is it unique? And, you know, is it do we feel like it can be defended and will stand alone as uh, as a brand that can can have a long life. Uh, so all those things go into it. And then it's always for us, it's about the people because usually brands are made by people and they usually come with people. And, you know, we want people who have aligned values that uh, want to do good by doing well, right? We have to do well. We have to run a good business, but we also want to do good for people and for society. And we think that we have a good mix of that, but we only want people who are aligned with that mission. Well, I love the fact that people like you are in this industry now thinking that way, because I think more and more of the industry needs to do that. I can't thank you enough for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today, sir. Anything else you want to add? 
No, it's uh, I've been a fan for uh, for many years uh, w- watching your career, and um, I'm so happy that you're uh, such a great advocate for the industry. And I think you do you do great work, and uh, you know, please keep it up. And happy to help in any way we can help. Anything you got going on, you know, you always have a home back here. If you want to talk about it, I'll definitely get you on and make sure people get an opportunity to hear your thoughts and and share your vision for the future. So thank you so much. If people want to find out more about you, where would they go? Uh, well, verticalwellness.com is our, our website. Our brands are sold at vwellshop.com. But if you come to our website, you can read all about us and, uh, you know, we're, we're out there. So um and, and more and more, you'll see us in stores and physical stores. As the year goes on, we'll have lots more physical distribution um, going forward. So uh, great to be here. And thanks so much. Absolutely. So look, you take care of yourself. Stay well. Love those family and your kids. I saw your sons and I know that they're Eagle Scouts like you, right? They are. And that was a lot harder to, to get them to be Eagle Scouts than it was to get myself to be an Eagle Scout. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. But different times, different times, different times. Yeah. You stay well, sir. Take care of yourself and make sure you tune into the next. Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.